first of all, the biggest mistake people make, it's storage, it's easy. You've never built a storage facility before. Conceptually, it's easy, but you're gonna lose um, revenue. You're gonna be have vacancy in some spots because you don't understand the product type. Hey, everything adds up, right? Yes. Hey guys, what is going on? My name is Yen and welcome back to Self Storage Income. Today we're continuing our conversation with Ryan Lorenzini. This is part two of two on our discussion about development. Ryan has worked in real estate development and building for quite some time now and has been developing self-storage facilities for the last 10 years. Today, we're gonna be following up on a lot of the things we talked about in our part one. We're gonna be talking about the exit strategy that needs to be built into every single deal, how developing storage facilities is not as easy as it might sound, and how do you hire the right contractors? And what are the things that you need to be keeping in mind when you have people come on your site. This is gonna be another fantastic episode, guys. If you can leave a review on this podcast, that would be amazing. We do see those and we use those as our feedback. But without further ado, let's get right into it. So if you're looking to build or develop a self-storage facility, one of the big challenges can be identifying and maximizing that rentable square footage, not the total square footage. What's the rentable square footage going to be? Forge Building Company can actually help you guys achieve that. As a complimentary service, Forge Building Company actually provides customized size and unit layouts. So they can look at your layout, they can look at your site plan, and they can provide a fantastic and efficient and maximized rentable square footage map for your self-storage facility or unit mix map for your facility. It's an incredible way to identify that rentable square footage to really hone in on your underwriting. These guys know self-storage. I mean, just in the last 15 years alone, these guys have built over 60 million square feet in storage, over 500 projects. These guys are absolute rock stars and total experts in all things self-storage. Be sure to check out Forge Building Company. One of the best ways to increase value of your storage facility is to integrate tech to improve operations, right? So Janus International actually has their no-key technology. It's a keyless access entry system that allows not only the access and entry to the gate, to the building, to the unit, it allows tenants to, and potential tenants to actually come in and rent a unit online, right? They can access online, see what units are available, rent the unit, access the building, the unit, everything straight from their phone without ever having to go to the office to do any kind of paperwork, do any kind of that kind of to do any kind of paperwork or any of that, which is an incredible amount of value for so many people and that user expectation that people have in today's marketplace. Again, Janus International, their Noki system, be sure to check that out. Link is in the show notes. Well, I think something, something that kind of resonated with me, uh, kind of hitting on that, where it's not only like worst case scenarios and failures as those potentially can come up, it's, it's the exit. And no matter at what point in time, whether you're just selling because you want to, or you're getting old, you want to retire, or you die, whatever that is, like there has to be a plan for the exit. And that was one of those things that I kind of remember being a light bulb for me where it's like, oh yeah, like it doesn't matter if I'm going to keep this thing forever or do this thing forever. I'm, I'm not always going to be here, <laughs> yeah. you know? So I think that's one of those things that people, 
uh, they want to avoid those conversations and then realize, you know, or fail to realize, you know, their mortality and the fact that that's they're going to have to exit at some point. Yes. In time. Well, just about every deal. Well, when you model a deal, you always have an exit, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, who models a deal into perpetuity? I don't know. Usually it's 10 years or yeah. five years or 15 or whatever it is, right? Yeah. So I, I, I totally appreciate that comment, Connor. It's like, you always have to have an exit plan, even even if your plan is to not, even, yeah, exactly. even if your plan is to hold yeah. as long as you can, yep. you still have to have that exit plan. So so I, I totally appreciate that comment. Thank you. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it too, it doesn't even have to do with you, right? Like forced exits is actually very, very common. I don't yeah. mean like you're forcing, I mean, market conditions. I mean, change in light. There's things that you're like, I have to exit. Mm -hmm. That was never part of the plan. I may not even want to, but it's just things change. We need to do it. The markets are failing great. We have risk. We got to do things that you would never even imagine five years prior, two years prior, 10 years, you have no clue. And all of a sudden you're like, we didn't plan an exit. Yeah. And the world is a different place in just 10 years. I don't know about you guys, but I'm just going to redefine what a good self-storage market is. And, I like uh, it. It's always going to be great. And it's going to be great. Yeah. It's fine. I don't care <laughs> Just change the definition. Yeah. <laughs> always going to be great. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Right. Yeah. It's, fine. It, it's fine. The house is burning, but it's okay. So what do you see now? Um, you're, you're developing right? Are you going to continue the development? Do you want to move into acquisitions? Like what is your plan moving forward here in your strategy? Where do you see the opportunities and risks? Well, I'm glad you're asking me that question because we're internally having this conversation in earnest really. And, and um, we, we believe that our core competency is development because that's what we've been doing, right? So that's what we feel that we're best at. And that's what we've been successful at. Um, we've never been very good at acquisitions, given the fact that we've never really acquired any existing facilities, even though we've tried a few times. Um, but so our goal is to really to continue to develop. And uh, right, right now we're actively pursuing self-storage sites all over the West Coast. You know, I think our territory spans anywhere from, uh, you know, California, Arizona, Nevada, Washington, Oregon, even Idaho, Utah, um, you know, all those Western states, you know, yeah. I feel like that's our wheelhouse in terms of development. And then I would also say, though, when you're out there looking for development sites, I will be looking for existing facilities as well, because I'd like to add that to our uh, competencies. You know, yeah. I would really love to acquire something, um, give it a shot, rebrand it, store local or yep. whatever, you know, uh, add a lot of value to something like that. I think I think our operational and management abilities have have uh, grown quite a bit in the last couple of years. You know, we've yeah. really been working on that. Um, so, you know, once you get some scale that we've achieved some scale now, uh, I think we, we have the capability to acquire something and really add value to it, um, to, you know, to really uh, to really uh, just, you know, create that portfolio. So that's that's what we're trying to do. You know, and, and my goal would be to develop, you know, I'd like to develop two, two sites a year just Minimum, yeah. minimum, you know, two sites a year. So, um, do you find that's getting, um, right now in the market? So, you know, two, three years ago versus now, do you feel like that's harder or do you think it's actually, you, you, you feel more confident about your ability to do two a year? 
How, how are you feeling? Are you, are you nervous about being able to find qualified good deals to execute on? Or are you saying, actually, no, we're really confident. And I'm, you know, what's your feeling on that? I'm actually, I'm feeling very confident. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, this, the, the self-storage market, the world, the world was kind of out of control. I mean, we yes. all know the last, the last couple of years have been crazy. You know yep. I mean? It's just probably the greatest market you know no, no one's we're not going to see this again never you know i, I don't happen i don't think so so no. i mean so i think a lot of that exuberance and so many people trying to come into the business might die down a little bit yeah and, and so i feel like that that creates more opportunity for the people like us who have been there and we're just we're just you know we're just moving forward yep. we're, we're not going to we're not going to try to time the market yep. we're just going to keep doing what we do which is we're going to go develop storage and uh, so, so I'm excited. I'm actually encouraged um, by what's happening, and I think I think the opportunities are there. I think it's just a matter of putting in the work, and I look forward to actually growing our company. I think we need more manpower. You know, that, I think our biggest challenge right now is bandwidth and manpower, yeah. and being being able to have uh, people around us with the skill set to be able to process those deals. And you know, finding sites, I'm not really worried about. It's more being able to process them, you know, get them through the cities, get them approved, you know, and then once, and then you got to have good construction people who are there, yeah. you know, we're going to hire general contractors, you know, uh, locally, we're in their areas of expertise, but we need to be there, you know, as owners, reps, builders, reps, making sure that, you know, that those guys are executing on schedule. So I feel like that is our biggest challenge is, is building up the team to be able to, uh, to execute on, you know, doing, a minimum of two new sites a year. How, how do you do that? We've been having a lot of conversations and obviously mm -hmm. Connor really is the development department. He heads it up. He's, um, you know, he does all things associated with uh, developments is everything from the partnerships and all that kind of stuff. But when we're looking as our development arm is expanding, because that's one of the major reason that we had Connor come on, it was to really build out a dynamic development company and yeah. a dynamic development. I need, department. I need, I need Connor. I need a guy like this, right? <laughs> <laughs> so Greg, when, when you look at that overall process, who are the people you, you mentioned, you, you like site reps, like what, what are you looking for as a person to hire on and what would their job description be? Like, what do you want them to do on the development? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think, It'd be nice. I mean, I, what what's Connor's job description? Director of development, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, director of development, um, and whatever else comes up. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> director yeah. of development yeah. and exactly. everything else. Yeah, and everything and, in between. Everything in between. Yeah, well, no, there there it is. Now, I mean, no, title, I think yeah. I. Hey, there you go. It's just someone like that. I mean, who's who's really dedicated and motivated, and uh, you know, we, we just look for people with good work ethic who are honest and yeah. fit with our integrity and values. Yeah. You know. Um, that's the most important thing. I mean, I, 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 I feel I that like we're, we're good at finding sites and getting sites, getting sites into contract. I mean, we, we've, we've always done that. So, but you, you, you know, obviously having a good land acquisition person is important. Um, but having someone who can really manage that entitlement, what I would call processing yeah. portion is to me, that is a, a tricky business because you have all these different jurisdictions, like we talked about. You know, you got to be able to, to get out there, meet the people in those jurisdictions, find a guy like that attorney who yep. can help you get something through, get something entitled. So 
So it's like, it's just, it's just time. Right. Yeah. So, so it's like, I'm looking, I would be looking for someone who could do that, you know, or maybe it's two people or maybe yeah. it's like the director of development. Plus we need like two processing people or whatever it is to go. Cause maybe we're processing in California and we're also processing in Arizona or Oregon or wherever it is, you know? So yeah. it might just depending on how big you want to get and how many sites you want to do. You just got to scale that thing up. What about on the, that's, that's awesome. I couldn't agree more. What about on the construction side? So how involved are you with when you get that GC? Okay. You've, you, you're using a GC, you've got the GC. What are you, what do you view as your role versus the GCs and what during the construction process are you doing and you feel the needs are? Well, it's a great question. And, and I think that's, uh, you know, some people, some developers might give a lot of control to their GCs, which is fine. You know, if you have a really great general contractor that you trust, maybe that's okay. You know, but if you're working with a new GC you've never worked with before, I mean, I think, I think for working with any GC, it's important for the, the developer slash owner to, to be involved every step of the process. Yeah. I mean, you, you need to be, you know, reviewing those budgets. You need to be reviewing with the general contractor. Hey, who are these subs we're using? I mean, really getting into the, the details with them, you know, it's like, hey, well, why don't we look at this or that? Or, yeah. or this GC over there is getting this price over here, you know? So, I mean, hey, everything adds up, right? Yes. And, uh, and in terms of schedule, huge, huge, right? Because it's like, do we have, I mean, if a GC gives you a, a bid and there's no schedule, I'd say, well, what is this? Yeah. There's no schedule. We need a schedule. Yeah. Right. So, and that's so important, you know, it's because it's like timing is everything. And it's like, well, is this going to take 12 months or 24 months? Yeah. That's a big difference. That's a big difference. So, so, you know, a big part of it is like us being out there. Hey, are we on schedule? And, and having someone on your, if you have someone on your staff who has been in construction and understands that process can be, can save you a lot of time and money in the long run because they can actually go out. We go out there on our construction sites once a week at minimum yeah. and we meet with the GCs and we look at the schedule and we update the schedule every month. So it's like every month we're looking at the schedule, we're looking at our progress and we're talking to them. Maybe, maybe we have ideas that they didn't have. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's important I think for owners slash developers to be a part of that process every step of the way. Yeah. You know, now you might have a GC that's so good you it's, you can kind of mate relax a little bit, but yeah. but you know you net hey you never know construction is is never something to relax about. Yeah. It's like it's so dynamic. It's so dynamic. It's all it's things can go wrong yes. quick. So you you have to be keeping your your um, you got to keep your finger on that all the time. Absolutely. So processing and then the construction management part. I think they're both very important because yeah. I, I think a lot of like finance guys, people who are kind of up here in the office, they're not out there in the field. They'll yeah. say, oh, the construction, that's uh, no problem. Yeah. There's the cost. That's the GC. It's all right. good. Yeah. The GC will handle yeah. it. Okay. If that's what you want to believe. Yep. But that's not really the way things work in reality. Yep. And then you're getting the overcharges. You're getting the reruns. And change all of a sudden you're like, oh, how many change orders do we have? Then what you started out with is nothing how you ended up. And then right. then you don't understand what happened in the middle. Why is it that we have 100 change orders? Yeah. I mean, so that, that shouldn't happen, right? Or, yes. or if it does, at least you know about it. Yeah. It should be approved. It should be. Yeah. And a lot of the change orders, I feel like, should be driven by us. We're having a change order because we found an opportunity right. that wasn't existing in the original plan. Right. We want to execute. Right. So it's a us-driven change order. Not them. 
meaning their plan wasn't good enough. So now they're making change orders. And you, I, I see builders that they're like, oh yeah, well, I went with this builder. Why'd you go with them? Well, they've done it and they were the cheapest. But then after the project's over, they were actually the most expensive. <laughs> and they're like, well, how'd that happen? Well, did you not read your contract? Right? They said, well, it was going to fluctuate or we were going to, you know, and all of a sudden the other ones were like, no, we're going to cap out at expenses. They included way more things that the other one didn't include that they included after the fact. And so what you thought at the first doesn't actually turn out to be what it ends up. That's true. And there's another element to that, which is working with the architect, right? Because, yes. Because, oh, the GC will say, well, that wasn't on the plans. Yes. And you say, okay, well, so reviewing those plans yes. and understanding how to review the plans is equally as important. So that's why having someone who's been in construction and really understanding how to read plans so that there's no disconnect when it comes to, you know, talking to your GC about these plans, you know, because that, that, I think that's, change orders, are, like you said, they're going to come from the owner because of an opportunity, which is great. I totally agree with that. But what I don't like are these change orders because, oh, the architect didn't put it in the plans or it's like, yeah. or there's a miscommunication or it's unclear, you know, that, that should not be unclear. That should all be ironed out up front. So I'm, so we just got done building a house, right? We walk into our house and we have like a bathroom that's like the pool bathroom plus the house bathroom. And we walk in there. The sink is three feet off the ground. <laughs> three feet. And we look at it and we're like, is this a, like, did you build it for midgets? Like, what is going on here? Like, and we we went to the builder and we're like, the it's but that's what the plan said. And I'm like, I understand that's what the plan said, but I also expect you to be a logical, normal human being that understands that somebody that is five foot anything doesn't want to lean down to three feet to wash their hands, right? And they're like, okay, well, that's going to be a change order. And I'm like, no, that's going to be a stupid cost because you were stupid. And you're you, like, these are things that I'm like, that's what a technical term, world? by the way. That's yeah, a, it is. It's we, a stupid we, we say that all the time. That's an... Yeah, yeah. So, and, but, and, you know, you're just sitting there going, really? Like, but you're exactly right. Yeah. It wasn't on the plans. And the subs take the plans and the subs just execute. The builder walks in. He wasn't a sub. He knew the sub was on site. Then he gets what he gets. And then he says, well, it wasn't on the plans. And if you're not on top of that, then you have three foot sinks. It's absolutely true. So, yeah. So, I mean, it's the whole process, right? And, and um, you know, not everyone can read the architectural plans. And usually mm -hmm. it's a guy who's been in construction for many years, you know, and it, having someone like that, maybe they're not on your team, but maybe it's a third party. You know, maybe it's like, hey, we get a, a, a some kind of construction consultant who can come in and review the plans, review the GC contract, excuse me, make sure that they, they're synced, they're synced up. Yeah. That would I would recommend something like that if you don't have that expertise in-house. Yeah. There's no two ways about it. The self-storage industry is one of the most incredible industries to be a part of. Real estate investment or otherwise, it's such an amazing community to, to be a part of and to enjoy. One of the big, huge things that self-storage has been absolutely lacking, though, is technology, and that's where Tenant Inc. comes in. Tenant Inc. is your one-stop shop solution for all things property management. They have a plethora of amazing tools at your fingertips that you can use to optimize your facility, to run it as smoothly and efficiently as possible, to maximize revenues, and to really drive value of your storage facility. Be sure to check out Tenant Inc. Link is in the show notes.
For so many of us, when we're looking at investing in a self-storage facility and purchasing our first facility, or maybe even a facility down the road, maybe we're veterans, we want to use SBA loans. They can be phenomenal options for us to be able to get into a facility at a great rate, at some great terms. Look no further than Live Oak Bank. These guys have some incredible options for SBAs, uh, some incredible terms. They know self-storage. These guys are going to be your one-stop shop for financing, funding, and all things self-storage. Link is in the show notes. Check these guys out. I'm big on checks and balances. Yeah. One of the things that we've really done, not we, Connor's really done, is we have multiple third parties that we're working with. You're bringing them all to the, the um, same page, but you're also using the third parties to check the other third parties. Yeah. So it's like, okay, architect, what do you think about this building plan? Right. All right. You know, the consultant, the construction man, whoever all these parties are, what do you think about the other one? You want to see that dialogue because, you know, you get these silos and the architect silo may seem right on that paper, but the builder's like, that's not how it plays out in reality. So a lot of people like we found before we start that project, we want that architect. We want the builder. We want the everybody in the room, in the room. In together. The room. Yeah before we start going making plans and then throw them all in after the plans are already done because all of a sudden then trying to value engineer out of it to try to make it mistakes it's it's a mess and it seems like it's not when you start out but then once you start to take an idea and put it to work all the flaws come out everywhere that could not have even been seen from that architect standpoint, from whoever, right? The site work standpoint, there's just so many factors that move into it. So you need all those people together, working together and seeing it really three-dimensionally, not just from their own expertise. Hey, I totally agree. I mean, if you can't get them all in the same room together, at least, you know, you gotta have an expert who's looking at it and and, and saying, hey, does this make sense? Does this sync up with that? I mean, and, and thankfully for us, we've got, people in-house who, who understand that yeah but if i didn't have that you know i i would i would be seeking out third-party help for that or like you said i'd get them all in the same room okay okay architect and and gc where what's what where's the disconnect or is there a disconnect you yeah. know what are our pitfalls here and just having those conversations in front could s- save you a lot of money a lot of money lot as of money. for us we had the builder and the architect where the builders like you engineered this thing like ridiculously over the top and they're like but that's how you do it and they're like well what you don't understand is that the storage we actually can use the walls and everything for support so you don't need to engineer a second floor like that five hundred thousand dollars saved immediately half a million dollars that's a great example yeah Mm -hmm. that's a great example i mean especially if you got an architect who's never done storage before or has not done a lot yeah right i mean that's another good point is that you should be seeking out those architects and and structural engineers who really have been working on the product type that you Well, in the product types important cuz the architect had done a lot of storage. Yeah. He hadn't done multi-story. Well, there you go. So well, the engineers the, the engineers the engineers too. Yeah. You know, a lot of these a lot of these firms are plug and play. They're you, again goes back to relationships. They're working with people that they've always worked with and it might be a firm that's you know, out of California and areas that, you know, they've got all these earthquake standards and everything else for their structural engineering. And they're just using their templates. This is what we do. Exactly yep. right. What we do. And that's, well, that's not the best way to do it. A hundred percent, hundred percent. So yeah, it's, it's very important to get those experts in those, those realms of whether it's structural, civil, 
any of that stuff for your specific asset type that you're building. Absolutely. And they're not all the same. Absolutely. They're not. And that's what I think a lot of people don't. First of all, the biggest mistake people make, it's storage. It's easy. You've never built a storage facility before. Conceptually, it's easy. But the moment they say that, the I know automatically the thing isn't going to, your product selection, meaning unit types, how it flows operationally, you are going to cut off massive revenue per square foot. You're going to lose um, revenue. You're going to be have vacancy in some spots because you don't understand the product type. And then it is simple conceptually, but then you start adding all these things in, multi-story, everything else. And if you get it wrong, because storage is volume, you're talking 600 doors. You get those things wrong and the cost is astronomical. And I have seen people, like we bought facilities that we had to go rebuild out because they built so many of the wrong units <laughs> and they were had 30% vacancy. Of course you did. Why did you ever think that people oh, like, would buy that? Like unit mix? Yeah. yeah, unit mix. And then, or flow. All right, you built these ginormous doors to use big halls, but uh, like you could put moving trucks and everything, but then your wide aisles don't allow for moving trucks and everything. So now the entire usage of the product you put on disappears. Yeah. And so now you have doors and you have a unit type that can't be accessed in the way that you want it. And so there's all these little things that people don't think about in storage, but the impact of them is massive. As opposed to if I had a six uh, room or a, you know a, a six door apartment building, right? There's only six of them, right? So you make a mistake, you fix it on one of them, right? Or the other. Well, on storage, it's amplified through volume. And that can be devastating when you get it out of the ground. I agree with that. I mean, unit mix is tough because, I mean, it's it's tough to really know. I mean, people say, oh, get a feasibility study. But it's like no one no. really has that data unless you're, you know, extra space and public storage. You really has that kind of data. Um, unit mix comes from experience and, and um, you know, you can learn from the market but it's hard to really know exactly but it is the, the whole functional thing is not that hard yeah you know i mean and and so yeah having a good architect to to design something that's really functional you know it's kind of like uh, i was talking earlier about our our loading lobby a covered loading lobby with the elevators you know from experience we had built a, a three-story building where i wasn't happy with the way that the flow was to the elevator and it's like this could be better, you know, and that took us building a facility to learn that lesson. Yep. You know, and it's not like it was bad. It's just, it, it could be it better. It could be better. It could be better. So, I mean, so when we designed that one, we were very specific with our architect. Hey, we want this, you know, we think this is going to be really good. And it turned out really good. So, but that, that's just, I mean, that was just experience. But you, too, you're talking about something different. One of the biggest mistakes that I find that people make is what you're talking about is a different type of level that we see most people in real estate investing. Most people in real estate development investing are real estate people, not storage people. And they look at it from a real estate standpoint. Sure. It's cost yeah. over revenue, I've cost over you. revenue. Yeah. You're talking about customer experience, yes. retail centric, yes. flow, right? Yeah. And real estate people don't tend to get that in storage. And every time I buy one, I know. You weren't a storage person when you built this. Like you just know, it's so obvious. You look at it and you're just like, this is crap. We're removing walls. We're removing storage doors, gates. We're changing flow. And because you build it like crap. 
and they don't think it's a big deal. I I need to make this in a white paper. We bought a facility. <laughs> we moved the gate. We doubled our move-ins the next month by one move. That's all it took. And you're like, they just didn't get it. They couldn't see it. You had experience, you saw it, and you can optimize for it, but it takes you looking at it from that st standpoint. Yeah. People look at storage like they look at it real estate. This isn't a triple net lease. This isn't a two-bedroom, one-bathroom that you have a long-term contract where somebody's going to live in there for three years. These are month-to-month move-ins, retail, showrooms, right? And that is a very different type of thinking when you're building. And all, the people that come into it looking as a real estate play cost over revenue they make big mistakes because they vastly oversimplify it well it's like what i said earlier there's there's the guys up in the office who are running the numbers and they just say oh the construction uh, no problem exactly <laughs> yep but it's like no it's actually important it's very important we, we have we have to have good design and we have to have good uh, good construction and you know we have yeah. to execute on that that's very important very important very important and i would say this i mean you this whole thing with other product types, you know, like retail apartments. I can speak for apartments, you know, because we've built some apartments. You know, the design of apartments is really important. I mean, yeah. you you can uh, you can really increase your revenue by having the best uh, floor plans in the market. You know, yeah. And and you know, so like newer, you know, we're building kind of a newer generation type apartment out in uh, Brentwood right now it's going to be the best thing on the market and we're going to be able to get the highest rents because we have the best layout units. Yeah. The yeah. best layout for the units. Exactly. You know, when you talk about, when we, when we talk about this in experience and, and I know this can be hard because for those of us who are in it, it seems so simple and so dumb where you wouldn't <laughs> recognize that though, unless you've experienced when I got started, no clue. And we learned from our mistakes. Like you said, Oh, that really doesn't work. I now have to redo what I just paid for. Right. Um, and you know, I saw a facility we went to in Colorado, which we actually did not buy because of this, where they had a second floor and the cost, they put an elevator in there that was a lift. Yeah. So nobody could go in it. So there was no elevator before? Well, no, so that when they built it, they, they put, had the lift, they had the lift, okay. but humans couldn't be in the lift. It's against right. the code and the rock. Right. So you put all your stuff in, it goes up, you then the you go walk up the stairs to your stuff, right? And the cost savings associated it was $50,000. I hope this was an older facility. I think what, it was. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, it's someone... This was like 10 years if ago. If someone built something like that now, I would say, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Like, yeah. and we went in there and they couldn't figure out why the second floor wasn't full. And I'm like... No one wants really? to use the lifts. <laughs> you, you, I don't want to move all my stuff in there, go upstairs, get the lift and move it in, right? Yeah. Um, and it, that was a $50,000 savings on a $10 million facility. It's, it's ludicrous, right? Pointless. But what you were just talking about, like that flow and everything. So getting experts that understand that. And we see feasibility studies that come in and you'll have somebody that gives you a feasibility study. And I look at it and I'm like, when you say experience... Is it with that asset type? Is this climate controlled, multi-story, multiple access points, drive aisle? What does that look like? Because it's not all the same. Whether it's like, just like you were talking about apartments, things like that, it's very different. So choosing those expertise, like you've done such a good job in, and like with, when you're talking about understanding those things, you if you haven't done it, you need to bring people in that have. Yeah. They can sit over you and say, I know this looks right in your eyes. And I feel like, 
but it's not going to play out that way. Mm-hmm. And you need to be very, very open to that when you're starting out, because if not, you're just going to miss things because you don't know. Hey, <clears throat> the beginning of wisdom is knowing what you don't know or knowing that you don't know anything, right? I mean, you got to, you got to bring someone in and it's like, Hey, I've never done this before. I mean, yeah. bring in someone who has, I mean, it, I think that's so important. So important. absolutely. Cause it's like, you're, you're talking about, you know, millions of dollars, yeah, millions of dollars to build a new self storage facility. Right. And so you can't afford to, to make a silly mistake. You know, honestly, mm-hmm. Ryan, probably that's the best quality about me and you, we recognize how stupid we are. <laughs> so it works out really well. Perfect. Me and Ryan are Is Connor included in that too? Or is Dude, it? Look yeah. at Connor, look, Connor's really smart, man. No. <laughs> Not even. That, that's just for me and you. That's why uh, I, so. I hire all the experts. <laughs> yeah. So um, where do you think the downsides are now? Right now? We've just, talked about Just in general? In, I mean, in general. What, do you, what are you scared about or what are you looking? When it comes to development, well, what are you nervous about? I mean, I, I'm always nervous about overbuilding, oversupply right now that we talked about it's market specific, you know, so that, that really is just market specific. So in California, am I worried about it? Not so much, not so much in the Bay area, like Arizona, Idaho, would that scare me? Yeah. I'm scared about overbuilding in some of these, these markets out here. Um, you know, what else would really scare me? I, I think, I think for storage, it's like, you know, that demand has, has been there and we, and we see it keeps growing, you know, um, but technology, you know, I think it's important for, you know, for, uh, for, for storage facilities to really be on the forefront of embracing that technology, you know, to, to really keep those customers engaged. And there's some big tech companies out there who might have some resources that could really put a dent in kind of this traditional yeah. model. And that, so I'm not going to get too specific on that, but, um, there, that is probably what scares me the most is, is these larger tech firms that might have the resources to create a model that, uh, that could uh, eat away at our market share uh, of the more traditional facility. Now, I think if the more traditional facility, having said that is uh, keeping up with technology, maybe we could be a part of that anyway. Right. And so having, having the, uh, the best possible software and access control will mitigate against those risks, I think. Mm-hmm. Could not agree more. Yeah, like you said, keeping up with it. Um, before we wrap up, I did want to ask both of you guys, I mean, land acquisition-wise, what metrics are we looking for? To say, cool, this can work as a, as a development project. Again, I'm sure it, it depends, like, as always. But, I mean, what are some of those fundamentals we're looking at to say, okay, great piece of land, I can build here, and this is most likely going to turn out well? Uh, okay, so it depends, and it's it's all very hyper local market specific, right? But you know, I think you, when you're looking at a land price, well, let's let's talk about the land first. A good site, in my opinion, uh, a good a good commercial site is a good apartment site is a good self storage site. You know, there's all these like apartments and storage have so much synergy. Actually, I think. Um, you know, storage has gone from being like in the back of the industrial park to being, you know, uh, on an, a good corner somewhere. It doesn't have to be like the prime corner, but right. a good corner, yeah. right? Or just a good access drive by visible. So, so having that kind of retail exposure, I think is great. Although I don't think it's totally necessary all the time, depending on the market you're in, but you know, 
physically being able to have enough land so that you can build something that is meeting the market's needs. Because I don't think I don't think you'd want to be. Correct me if I'm wrong. In Idaho, building uh, I don't know a four story on one acre. I don't know if that makes sense. It's like yeah. it sounds expensive I to me. No. I, I, right. And, I, and I, the I, utilization. I, we 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 literally just went through this. Me and Connor, we had a site and. The more me and Connor dug into it, the more we're like, this is all wrong. We got to get rid of these upper levels. They're not going to be utilized. And it was really having that, you know, kind of come to Jesus moment where it's like, we can get more utilization. We, on paper, we can chart. It won't play out that way. And we had to, we had to cut those out. I think you just, I mean, like, I think a lot of markets are still single story markets and drive up markets. And so for those, you need three to four acres, maybe five, whatever it is. Um, so I, I personally like those three to four acre sites where you could do a lot of drive ups and it's still a lot of single story. Um, and then, you know, in terms of price, the price just comes down to rent, right? I mean, rents and costs. And, yeah. and so we're always looking at those market rents. And it's like, Hey, is this a dollar 50 a square foot market? Is this a $2? I mean, once you start getting up to like two over $2, you start thinking, okay, maybe we can go up more here. But it's a, if you're in that dollar 50 range, you know, those are still pretty single-story markets, in my opinion. I think, yeah. at least what I'm accustomed to. Yeah. So, so, so I still, I still like those sites. You know, those those three to four acre sites where you can build more of a drive-up fortress facility. That people people like that. You know, there's demand for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with all those things. It, it, you know, it's funny when we look at it. Our model is so. I think it, a lot of people get it confused by it because they're like. But what markets do you like? Because you're in first tier markets, yet you're in other markets that are not first tier and they're not fast growing. I mean, I go, well, it depends on the strategy. So I'm really big on acquiring things where not where square footage isn't coming out of the ground and I can buy at a cost basis that makes it work at a dollar a square foot. But when it comes to development, I, I can't touch those markets. Yeah, I won't. I will not touch a market that's a dollar a square foot. It's, I'm like, to me, it may work, but I'm on a razor. It'd have to be really cheap to build. It'd have to be really cheap to build. Yeah. So we are fast growing, expensive, super high demand. Yeah. And that's the spread I look for. I want two bucks a square foot. I want a growth rate at well over 1%. And I want to see five bucks, uh, or excuse me, five square feet per capita or less. That leaves us with very limited spots, right, and everything. But we're we're really picky about that because I want a big. Can you big find margin. that? And I, you told me earlier you did. Like, there's a, a site in Idaho that was like less than five per capita. Or yes, something like that. we found one, okay. and we could only enter into it because of that special yeah. reason. Like, we could have never bought land. Lo- that was the local it. expertise, right there. Yes, exactly. Got it. Other than that, and two, by the way, I've never seen another site like that in Idaho that we've even had. I, I've never seen it. Right. Other than that, we're in first tier markets, right? right. So, so, so just piggybacking on that, I mean, in terms of demographics, I mean, everyone's got their little pet numbers they love and all yep. that, but you know, I've, I've always looked for, you know, obviously growth, you know, that 1% growth rate is probably a, a good minimum, but, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, I like, I like that 50,000, uh, population within three miles minimum, you know, we do too. Although, although I don't know if it, I mean, it's like. If the if the income it's kind of like an income and and population thing for me it's like because yes. if the income is really high and the population is a little lower it's like okay that could still work and then obviously 
if it's kind of a destination type of place, the population might not be as important. But just if you're just in a typical suburban market, I like having at least 50,000 people in that three mile radius. Um, and then in terms of the, the uh, per capita, yeah, if it's less than five, it's like kind of like a no brainer in my yeah. mind. You know, that's yeah. like, oh, this is great. As long as rents are high. Yeah, well, yeah, you got to look at the rents, but you know, let's just assume the rents are okay. Yeah, that's like under five all day long. All day long, you know, and then and then it's like you start getting up to seven, eight. It's like, well, okay, then you got to look at a little harder. But you know, I hey, we've got we're in a market, Vacaville, where I think our per capita is like ten, but that place is performing. Mm you know, probably better than most of their other facilities. It's just some markets, utilization is, is a huge thing. We're right by, about. we're right yes. by the air force base. Yeah. And so it's just like the move-ins move outs are just over the top. Yes. You know, so it's like that sometimes that per capita number is deceiving, but it is local expertise, <laughs> local expertise. Again, yeah. And you touched on something too in that, that I really want to hit on. Yeah. I think what you get on, you're talking about the 50,000 square feet and how we look at it. Cause I agree a hundred percent. I look at it more of the impact of the square footage. Yeah. So when you get below like 50,000 people. So if I'm, if I'm in a market with 15,000 people, and I put a hundred thousand square feet onto that market. That is a massive change in the supply. And most of those markets, the change is so big. I don't care what anybody says. You cannot figure out if there's demand there because how could you, you're going to double the entire supply in the market. There's no history. For there's it. no history for it. There's yeah. no metrics for it. So once you start to get really low in that population, you run a risk of saying, oh, I think we can build 50,000 square feet only to find out that there was only 20,000 square feet of demand because the population was so low and you couldn't actively measure above that. And so we want to see uh, what I view as the impact of our build on the market. So are we going to double that square footage are we going to increase that square footage by 30 percent right like i want to see 15 percent or less if our square footage coming onto the market is increasing supply by 20 plus percent unless i have a lot of local expertise i'm scared oh that's interesting so so 15 is kind of your uh your benchmark there yeah we don't want to because it's it's measurable i'm like i can see if you're 95 percent occupancy you take that across all the facilities how much square footage is vacancy right but if i got to put on twenty thousand, if i increase the supply by 20 percent, that means that all of those facilities right if they dropped you know five percent that is now vastly eating into that 20 percent of that market share Yeah. yeah that makes sense that's and I you know it's funny because I probably hadn't thought of it that way, but maybe it's because that's is usually smaller markets, you know, where, yes. where you're going to be like coming in and actually, oh, I'm adding twenty plus percent. To where this I market. started. Oh, this is where you yeah. are building stuff or buying stuff. And I think about it because I started in that market <laughs> and somebody built in one of those markets and it destroyed our market for eight years. Yeah, and that would piss you off, right? Yep. So now I'm always like, how much square footage can this market handle? And so it stuck with me. Once again, it's just hey, that that's, experience. That's experience. Yep. So that's good. No, it's, that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Well, dude, I'm just glad you, you came. Seriously, this Thank was you. awesome podcast. And it is so different just having you here. I, I think I love it. 
Um, you know, I just love having you around because our conversations every time I'm just like, we should be recording this. This is a great conversation. Well, probably so, not all of them. Actually. Definitely not all of them. <laughs> <laughs> at least, at least 50% of them should actually never be open to the public. But other than that, yes. Well, so thank, thank you. you. Thank hey, you for thanks, coming buddy. in, man. Appreciate yeah, it was good having good you. Good seeing you. Yeah. Thanks a bunch. Honor, thank you. Yeah, good seeing you. Appreciate it, man. Um, that said, if uh, anybody wants to keep up with you, man, where do they go? Oh, well, you can go to ClaremontCo.com. It's C-L-A-R-E-M-O-N-T-C-O.com. That's like the Claremont Companies. And my name is Ryan Lorenzini, and please feel free to reach out to me. Absolutely. We'll put it in the show notes. We'll do. Thanks, everybody. And now for some feedback. Tex Kyle says, AJ and his co-host teach how they look at self-storage facilities and apply a value-add strategy to be able to make the facilities produce more revenue. He brings on a lot of people who listen to the show and purchase their first facility. He's a great teacher for anyone considering opening self-storage or mini-storage. Thanks so much for the review, Kyle, and thank you for listening to our podcast. We really appreciate it. I'm so glad to hear that you've been able to get value out of our podcast. I mean, that's the whole reason why we bring on guests and we talk about the things that we do day to day. Don't forget the registration for the self-storage income live event is still open. We're only about a month away, guys. I was there at last year's. It was absolutely amazing. And this year's is going to be even bigger and better than ever. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. We'll see you next time. And cut. All right. Let's go drink beers. That's right. That was awesome. <laughs> Dude, seriously, that was great. That was awesome.